is just have a lot of fun and celebrate the wins. I think startups are, you know, a roller coaster ride at times and you have to be kind of an ultra optimistic person. And so bring that, you know, optimism to the company. You're listening to the Evolved Sales Leader, an overpass podcast. This is a show for the sharp-minded business development or sales innovator who's curious about new ways to grow and seeks actionable insights you can leverage to qualify for that next round of funding, achieve a successful initial public offering, or systematically get in front of more of your ideal clients or customers in a post-COVID world. Let's get into the show. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Jonathan Fisher, your host, and I'm here today with Chris Rudigrop. Chris has a lot to share with you. You're going to be excited to hear from him. Chris grew up in Silicon Valley, acquired a passion for entrepreneurship, probably just from the drinking water, and beginning in call centers and sales, advanced to become the CEO and co-founder of Sendoso, a highly successful Bay Area startup company. Founded just in 2016, they have already received over $152 million in venture capital, including $100 million Series C funding, which they closed up just a couple of months ago. So we're going to want to hear just how Chris was able to achieve such great success in such a short time frame and some of the ways that he was able to scale his team and structure for growth at that level. Chris, excited to have you today. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, Jonathan. Really excited to be here. So maybe just starting off a little bit, uh, let's give you a chance to uh, shamelessly plug Sendoso. I think what you do is really clever and neat and uh, give us the overview of, of what Sendoso was all about, if you would. Of course. So Sendoso, we're a sending platform that helps other companies send out direct mail, corporate gifts, swag, handwritten notes, you name it, we can send it. So it's part software that makes it easy to have teams and budgets and integrate into your tech stack. It's part marketplace of all the different gifts or different mailers or anything you could ever want to send out. And then it's part logistics and fulfillment where we actually get those things sent out on your behalf. So that sounds really neat. I think it's worth maybe sharing a little bit. What was the impetus for this business idea, which obviously is catching on all over the place right now? Yeah. So I spent about 10 years in software sales prior to starting the company. And I was at my last company. I was uh, in, this, in a sales role at a company called TalkDesk. And I found myself wanting to get more personal and break through some of that digital kind of spammy emails that everyone sends. And so I was writing handwritten notes. I'd go grab swag from our swag closet and ship it out. Or I'd go find a quirky gift off of Amazon and mail it to a prospect. And it worked really well. It was just manual, time consuming. I'd always get questions from my boss of like, why are you expense reporting this? And uh, I just dreamed up of an idea of like, why can't I just click a button and send something out? And that kind of led to the next phase, which was really like, oh, maybe I should research this a little bit more. So I dug deeper into kind of the overall category of corporate gifting and and swag and, and direct mail and saw that hundreds of billions were being spent there already. It was just all offline, spreadsheet driven, sideload. And so that was like the next aha moment where it's like old industry that you can disrupt with modern software. And so that was um, kind of what led me to wanting to get started. Heart and soul of every good business idea, yes. a problem everyone's dealing with and a simpler way to solve that problem. Exactly. And then a huge category or, uh, potentially to, to drive the addressable market forward. So I think a lot of folks would have a question. So how do I calculate ROI on just sending gifts and swag out to people? I mean, we know we, we intuitively grasp, okay, that it helps make a connection, but what's the dollars and cents of that at the end of the day? 
Yeah, there's a couple different ways where our customers are generating uh, and tracking ROI. One is just the the performance of direct mail when you're sending how much you spend to send something out and then the results of that campaign. And for the first time for most of our customers, they might have been doing some kind of mailings and direct mail and gifting before, but it was all very offline and not really tracked. So now we're tracking that back to their CRMs so they can see, okay, I spent this much and here's all the recipients and this is the campaign attribution. So there's that ROI. There's the ROI of actually having us manually do it or, or automatically doing it at scale versus having a, a highly paid, you know, VP of demand gen internally pack boxes or highly paid salesperson try to write handwritten notes and send it out. So it's kind of the, the ROI of labor. And then there's some ROI on just the costs of goods and we can provide uh, better costs of goods or shipping and some of those other costs versus if you were to buy them yourself as a customer. Sounds great. Well, the next logical question is, if you know anything about venture funding at all, to have that trajectory in five plus odd years, pretty unusual. I shared with you earlier, I'm looking up numbers. You're, you're certainly in the 95th percentile overall. What do you attribute that success to, other than the fact the idea obviously is a great one, but in terms of what you've done with Sendoso, what do you think are the keys to winning those multiple rounds of funding? Yeah. So early on, we really focused on driving traction and revenue. And I think that that was a big, big bonus for us for getting our first round for, you know, our first seed round, which was, uh, you know, 2 million. We then raised a series A, like a little less than a year after that for for 12 million. And then a little less than a year after that, we raised 40 million. And then about a year and a half raised another 100 million. And each time we were drastically growing our revenue, and and I think that showed our our traction. I uh, really uh, propelled our business forward. And I think some some companies uh, go out and raise when you know they have an idea. I think we decided that we wanted to really drive traction, and then because of that, it just kind of snowballed uh, our, our numbers thereafter. So I think we had something hmm. like five million in in ARR when we raised our Series A. Which in hmm. today's world, I think a lot of companies are raising Series A's on much lower ARR. Yeah, for sure. I was looking at those numbers as well. So this is revenue-driven valuation model is what I'm hearing. And why do you think that's superior to someone just kind of hoping they're going to sell the investors mostly? You know, you're you're obviously you have to to pitch and, and close investor uh, funding entities, mm-hmm. but you didn't rely on just your own sales skills. You decided that revenue had to come first. Why did you do that? Yeah. So for me, looking at the long, long long-term vision, uh, most companies are ultimately valued at some form of a multiple of your revenue. Uh, And so that was really important, especially going into the public markets or or even an acquisition. We needed to have a strong revenue multiple uh, valuation and something that we could grow into and live up to. I think uh, hmm. personally, I see a lot of companies right now getting extremely high valuations at, you know, some of the, I read something recently, it was like a hundred X, you know, your, <laughs> your era, that was like the extreme, but there's still like, you know, 70, 80, you know, X and even 50 X, which is, uh, can be hard to maintain uh, or hard to grow into. And so for us, we were really trying to work at a, a strategy where we had the revenue so that we could drive the, the revenue multiple to get to the valuation that we wanted. 
Personal question. Sure. Round C. Um, okay, from here, it's typically either IPO or you're looking for a suitor. Do you, do you know where you think you might want to go? I would say that we're still, we, we, we still have, you know, enough growth potential or we could see a, a D or an E, you know, have another round of funding okay. before, you know, looking at potentially an IPO. So I don't think that we're, you know, we're not IPOing tomorrow. We're not selling tomorrow. But, you know, in the years to come, there's uh, a lot of uh, exciting times ahead. Okay. I like it. So you've got that long-term commitment to, to your vision. Correct. So, okay. If revenue is key, what's been your go-to-market model? I know something else our listeners would love to hear would be a great value. Could you give us the blow-by-blow? How are you acquiring or how, how, how have you acquired? Maybe it's changed. I would imagine so in the, in the uh, different iterations as you've grown Sedoso all the way back from the very beginning. Maybe you learned a few lessons there. Tell me about the evolution of your go-to-market model and maybe where it is today, if you wouldn't mind. For sure. And so I would say there's probably kind of four key areas that stand out and I'll kind of hit, hit on each of them. So the first one is very early on, we developed our outbound sales model. So when we were, you know, a handful of people, we started to bring on SDRs and AEs and really build out our SDR model. And so this was key for us as we knew we were B2B sales. We knew we uh, wanted to drive some high ticket uh, ACVs. And so I think very early on, uh, well, well, some companies I think still have founders selling or will maybe hire a, a VP of sales early on. We like very quickly hired SDRs to, to, to learn that mm-hmm. motion, build that out. Now, I think the, the, the you know, for, for us, I came from sales and so did my co-founder. So it came natural for us and it might be easier for me to say than a, a product or engineering led founder. But we, mm-hmm. you know, day one hired an outbound sales team so that we could then build that outbound sales muscle. So that was the, the first mm-hmm. thing. And I think my biggest advice to CEOs or founders is how quickly can you hire a pair of SDRs and a pair of AEs? Because I, mm. I ultimately feel like that founder's in the early days when they sell the product, you're, you're not real. Maybe you're, you're faking product market fit mentally because you feel like, okay, we're succeeding there, but really you need to prove go to market fit, which is, can I get some strangers that come in that aren't incentivized by the gazillions of, of equity outcome that you could make to come in here and sell mm-hmm. and hit quota. And so I think as quickly as you can understand that is, is equally as important as uh, figuring out actual product market fit. So mm-hmm. side tangent, but uh, first is outbound. We then very early on uh, were focused on inbound marketing and driving demo requests through that. And so part of that was your, you know, your traditional field marketing, your content marketing, your campaign marketing, events, everything we, we really focused on that drove people into our funnel that way. And we, we focused on some brand too. I know in some of the early days, it's, you know, conferences can feel really expensive, but that was a key part of getting our logo and our name out there and driving recognition hmm. that way too. Okay. Now, the third thing was was partner. So we partnered with quite a few companies and um, these were mostly uh, companies that we integrated into. The Salesforce, the Outreach, the SalesLoft, the Marketo, the, the HubSpot, et cetera, of the world. And we uh, you know, co-marketed, co-sold with them. So that was a, a crucial part of our strategy. And then the fourth is really kind of a product-led strategy, which is how do we drive virality in our product to grow revenue? How do we, you know, let the users, you know, expand and land and expand by inviting others and other tactics there to, to drive uh, signups and, and revenue ultimately? 
Sounds like it's a pretty well full-fledged model. Who's your ICP right now? So like in terms of company and then who do you need to get in front of inside those companies typically? Yeah. So we, there's a variety of different use cases, but we typically will sell, we sell into SMB, mid-market and enterprise. So probably our sweet spot is maybe in the, the mid-market enterprise, although we do have you know, thousands of users or tens of thousands of users using us in the kind of an SMB type format. So I'd say across all different company segment sizes, we, we then look at usually targeting marketing leader or a sales leader. Um, in some cases, a customer success or client services leader. And then most recently through COVID, HR leaders as well, people leaders. So really seeing that this is leveraged for internal use cases. And so we'll, hmm. you know, we'll uh, sell into a variety of different ICPs, which is, I think, a, a good and a bad thing. I think for us, it's a good thing because it just makes our addressable market so huge. You know, on the contrary, we have to make sure we stay focused and we, we uh, continue to build out our product, continue to keep our content marketing and everything so that we can uh, really win in, in all those different use cases. That makes sense. So that's interesting. So HR directors are using you as a method to maybe motivate and reward their team members. Is that is that connected to the, the growth of distributed workforces, would you say? Correct. Yep. And then also to welcome new employees uh, for birthdays, for, you know, life events, for, you know, company milestone events and celebrations, for holidays. But yeah, I mean, with everyone working remote, there's uh, even more of a need for team leaders, for, you know, people leaders to engage this remote workforce. Hmm. Well, that segues nicely to my next question for you, which is you're, you, you've grown this company on really a distributed model from day one. Mm-hmm. And so I'm curious, what do you think the biggest potential pitfalls are? Like maybe what have been your concerns? What do you think tend to be problems that companies face when dealing with distributed workforce? If you could enumerate those... You know, whether you've dealt with them or not, like what are some of the broad issues and then what are some ways you've overcome challenges that you definitely did see in your own team? Yeah. So I think some of the challenges, one is around just collaboration and working in this new, like more asynchronous environment. Um, I think most people are tapping people on the shoulders or standing up, walking over to somebody and it's a little bit trickier. Uh, So I'd say kind of getting good at collaborating virtually, you know, whiteboarding Mm -hmm. virtually, you know, in a room with 10 people and trying to collaborate over Zoom virtually. So I think just collaboration in general. Um, is something that I think is, is unique. I think too, is being, you know, a self-starter or, you know, not being distracted. I think you're at home. So it's like, okay, I can just go walk in the other room and watch Netflix. And so it's, how do you, you know, how do you plan your day? And I think that's a new, a new skill that a lot of the workforce of yesterday didn't really have to figure out. It was, I go in the office, you know, I'm sitting at my desk, I'll figure out what I need to do. You know, how do you deal with distractions, especially if you have roommates? So I think that's something I think there's challenges with, you know, hiring and scaling the team because now you, while it's a good thing where companies have opened up their employee base to saying, Hey, I'll hire from anywhere at the same time, it Mm -hmm. makes it so that now, you know, you've, uh, you've got to, you know, manage those people remotely you've got to figure out how to onboard them. And you also have to, you know, figure out how to kind of build a more human connection, which I think, uh, you know, bringing people in the office just happened naturally. Now you have to like 
overtly, you know, go in and try to figure out how do I be best friends with everybody so that you can keep that those employees for the long haul. Well, and, and do, do, you, do you sometimes have a concern that some of these employees could be going over watching Netflix or trying to multitask? They've got a game going on on one screen and like, what, what have you, if so, what do you do to combat that or try to stay on top of that? Yeah. So I don't know if I, I don't have a personal concern about that for my company. I think it's just a general challenge that's faced out there. Uh, I think that, mm-hmm. you know, and for us, I think we, uh, you know, are, as, as a leader, you know, you have to make sure that you can help people have productivity tools to make them more productive if they're going to get distracted or, mm-hmm. you know, uh, create a, a work environment and a place where they, they don't want to, you know, go spend half their day doing something else where they're excited about their job um, and where they're excited about where they work and the potential. So I think there's a lot of, you know, company culture and, and you know, Kool-Aid and how, you know, everything that you need to make it feel like this is the coolest place to work so that you actually do work because um, it's easy not to. What do you mean by Kool-Aid? And I think it's just like drinking your own Kool-Aid, you know, what what I Mm -hmm. mean by that is really, you know, how do you just create a company culture where people love to work there? And so I, uh, I guess I kind of call it drinking the Kool-Aid, but it's other people might refer to it as just, you know, the the company culture. Sure. I thought that's what you meant. I didn't Mm -hmm. think, I didn't think you meant literal Kool-Aid, but (laughs) (laughs) never know. That's why I asked. But uh, no, uh, people use that expression. There's a, there's a, a need to, to not just talk about, hey, here are company values. But I think when we say drink the Kool-Aid, what we mean is we're true believers. Mm-hmm. It becomes contagious. And maybe we're in a in a joking way saying it's almost cult-like and that we kind of yes. start to think the same way and adopt the same patterns and, and we're connected in mission, which is a good thing. Maybe, I guess apparently it's been enough years, uh, so we could use the Kool-Aid thing to, to make that joke. <laughs> but wh- where do you think most companies miss the boat on this issue of culture, of, of creating this winning kind of, hey, I want to be a part of that mission feeling that is so important to building teams. Yeah. So, you know, I'd say companies, you know, that overlook it and and don't prioritize it, you know, just think that everything's normal since, you know, pre-COVID time. So companies kind of look the other direction. I think that companies that aren't training leaders or middle managers to be good at things, I think training and enablement is one of the key areas that you know, you, you have control over helping train and enable people, and then they can distill that to the, to their direct reports. So I think for companies mm-hmm. not investing in, in training and enablement, um, that could, uh, be a downfall. I, I think, you know, leadership, not thinking about this day in and day out. I think it's one of the biggest things that you need to do is how do you, uh, not only create a, a, a happy culture and a, a, a productive workforce, but how do you go above and beyond to, to keep those employees, so that you can uh, really retain them and grow the company. Mm-hmm. So circle back and go deeper on your own methodology. So could you yeah. list a few ways that you personally are making sure that you're, as you just said, going above and beyond to stay engaged? Yeah. So I personally, I do a lot of one-on-ones with a lot of different people and not just like my direct reports, like executives, but could be an SDR, could be a a CSM. You know, I'm meeting with a lot of different folks across the entire organization so I can get a different pulse on what's happening. And I think that's been helpful for me to create uh, just a a lot of understandings on what's happening where. I also make myself very available. So I'm helping our sales team with, you know, intros, if I can help them with, uh, you know, prospecting or customer accounts. You know, I, I join our... You know, maybe our product team meetings from time to time so I can share ideas and visionary stuff. I'm, you know, there's all hands, there's uh, other t- team uh, events. There was a, 
you know, uh, so wh where I can make myself available, that ultimately that availability uh, drives people to want to see that, you know, the CEO is actively involved. So I think that's something else I do. You know, we, we really try to be transparent and, and, you know, through our all hands constantly are sharing internally our, our metrics, our milestones, our, our, our winning. Uh, and so that's something that I think helps as well. Excellent. So where do you see the trend going in terms of the distributed workforce of having, you know, uh, virtual people in what and maybe even beyond business development, but obviously that's sort of the, the cutting edge we're talking about here. Where do you see things going? Do you think that's going to shrink anytime soon? Tell us your thoughts. Yeah. So, you know, I've been thinking about this more lately and I've been meeting with, you know, some of our, some of, some of our different teams in person again, um, as you know, that's becoming a little bit more of the norm here and there and whether it's for a happy hour or for it's a dinner or even an in-office event. And I'm finding that people are actually really missing each other. And so I think there was this honeymoon phase where people loved the idea of I can work from home and I'm going to work from, you know, I'm going to move across the country and work from over here. But I think that we're real. I'm realizing that some of those people like they're, they make their friendships. They have this, you know, work family that not being able to see them in person um, is hard or new employees, mm -hmm. you know, you miss out on uh, sometimes virtually uh, being able to build best friends because you're just talking in a very purposeful, you know, uh, more meeting format versus, you know, a dinner where you get to know somebody, you know, really ad hocly. So just some, some recent interactions, I think we'll start to see a bit more of a, either a hybrid model where people are driving back into the office for some number of days, a hub model where you'll have a lot of micro offices around the country, around the world, or a model where it's encouraged to travel to one of the major HQs quite frequently. And so you'll see a lot of groups come together through trips and that cost will just be a part of the business where you maybe you won't have as high of real estate space. You won't have you know, a hundred percent of your employees having a desk, but if you have, you know, a third of them come in and you still have two thirds of the space, you can cover the, the costs of everyone to fly in frequently, uh, as a way to bring people together to just feel that team, you know, camaraderie. That makes sense. That makes sense. What, what do you think the ongoing role will be in business development and having the ability to get SDRs quickly and get them onboarded and effective quickly and in a cost-effective way? I mean, is there obviously cost of acquisition is huge in running any company, especially one that's, that's, that's younger. What are your thoughts on that? Is that still going to remain a need for Sendoso and other players in the space? In, in, yeah, I mean, I think uh, SDRs or BDRs are extremely important to the kind of outbound sales process. I think finding them remotely, if you can do it, if you can, if you have a, a sizable workforce that can manage that, I think that's important. When you're a small startup, maybe Series Seed or even A, it's it's pretty beneficial to have them close to home, just because there's mm -hmm. such a dynamic, changing environment, or they're so, so much more a part of the team where their feedback on a, a meeting that didn't happen can really change your messaging. Like you know, you're much more agile when you're you know mm -hmm. a thirty person company. But I think we'll see a lot of you know bigger, larger enterprises where they they'll have uh sales development reps everywhere and it'll uh and that that'll be a little bit more common although i think there'll still be these hubs where you'll see sdrs wanting to come back because especially if you're hiring out of universities you know it's a 
if it's your first job, it, there's benefits to being around people, to hearing, you know, other people's pitches and, and high-fiving. Sure, sure. Well, and it sounds like, especially if we are modeling on Sendoso's growth, it's really, it was key to iterate a lot early on and, mm-hmm. and move away from being reliant on the founders. That's a common issue. A lot of, yes. a lot of founders do come from sales. That makes a lot of sense. And as you mentioned earlier, that's not necessarily completely transferable. Only mm-hmm. once you've been able to inculcate that into a, another team do you have something that is self-perpetuating. And but that's going to continue to iterate, and and yes. the, iter- the 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 number of iterations is much higher in those earlier months and years in a, a, a startup. But once you're getting into into a B level, C level, I think you're probably feeling this now, you're probably settling in. There's some rhythm to it. You have a core culture and you can use technology and have sort of a blended workforce and be successful. This is kind of what I'm hearing. Would you agree mm-hmm. with that? And how would you how would you maybe amplify that? And what advice would you give to other companies wanting to do something like you've done? You know, start from square one and make this trajectory? What are some uh, key pieces of advice you would give? Yeah. So some of the advices I would give is one is get good at hiring and recruiting really early. I think that, you know, is one of the biggest things that my takeaways is we've been needing to hire hundreds and hundreds of people. So I think in the early days, you're focused on, you know, building a sales engine or you're building a product and engineering engine, but you should focus on building a recruiting engine. And how are you going to go recruit? So I think that uh, recruiting and talent is what I think sets people apart when you can just really take Mm -hmm. off and scale. Uh, So I think that's um, an important takeaway. Another important takeaway, I think, is just have a lot of fun and celebrate the wins. I think startups are, you know, a roller coaster ride at times and you have to be kind of an ultra optimistic person. And so uh, bring that you know, optimism to the company. I think that's something that we did really early on is we would always celebrate, you know, the, the small wins and we still do that today. Excellent. Excellent. So how could people find you if they want to connect with you and continue to learn from you as your journey is uh, certainly not slowing down anytime soon from what you share with us today, where can they best find Chris Rudigrop? Yeah. So, uh, you can definitely find me through email. It's Chris K R I S at Sendoso.com. If you're curious about Sendoso, you can check us out at Sendoso.com. You can add me on LinkedIn. Happy to chat further. Uh, I love talking to other entrepreneurs. I have love talking to other, you know, go to market leaders. I love getting pitched like the coolest and newest, you know, tech out there. So yeah, I'm a, a big fan of, of meeting new people. All right. Well, listeners, there you have it. Chris is game for a pitch. So get on it and reach out to Chris on LinkedIn or via email. That's Chris with a K, correct? At Sendoso.com. Exactly. All right. Well, Chris, fantastic to have you with us. Maybe we can touch base with you again in a couple years when you're getting into Series D, E. Maybe you are going to be looking at IPO. We're still going to be here researching the best methods uh, for go-to-market, for scaling your teams, and uh, maybe we can have you back in the future. That would be fun. Let's do it. All right. Thanks again for being with us. Take care. Thanks, Jonathan. Overpass makes it simple, seamless, and highly cost-effective to engage with new clients and effectively manage remote teams from anywhere in the world. We provide a comprehensive platform that allows you to find, interview, hire, and pay top quality sales and business development professionals all from within a single environment. For evolved sales leaders who are looking for a new edge with an incredible ROI, visit us at overpass.com to learn more. You've been listening to The Evolved Sales Leader, hosted by Overpass. 
Never miss an episode by subscribing to the show in your favorite podcast player. Please give us a rating, leave a comment, and share episodes you love. That helps us keep bringing you conversations and cutting-edge content so you can keep evolving your sales leadership. Thanks for listening. Until next time, never stop evolving.